Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Father, confronted by this question from the lips of Jesus himself, what do you think about the Christ? We pray, Lord, that you would give us the answer, that we would know the Lord Jesus for who he is, that in this preaching of his word, you would awaken us to the truth of his words. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If any of you this morning aspire to become TV detectives, Jesus actually has a pretty good lesson that you could incorporate. Uh, I learned this first, not from Jesus, but from Columbo. It has to do with the way that you interrogate suspects. Right at the end, when everything's over and you've lured them into a sense of false security, as you're making towards the exit, you do this little move where you pause, you turn around, you say, wait a second. Let me ask you one last question. And it seems so innocuous. It seems so innocent. But whatever that one last question is, that's the question that's going to break the case wide open. That's the one that's going to reveal the hearts of the people who attempt to answer it. And I feel a little bit of that as I read this passage. Because this chapter, chapter 22, it feels like an interrogation, right? Wave after wave of adversaries line up and they come to test Jesus, to, to trick him, to try to get him to misspeak or say the wrong thing to get him into trouble. And now they've, they've discovered time and time again that it's not working. It's not going to work. And like they're ready to, to just give up and move on. And in that moment, as you can imagine, the, the crowd's sort of breaking up and everyone's saying, okay, well, I guess we'll try again next time. Jesus says, hmm, while I have you here, let me ask you a question. And what a question it is. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Because that's what Christ means, the anointed one. He's asking them a question like, what do you say about the one God promised? Specifically, whose son is he? That's the question. It seems pretty simple, and they answer it right away, maybe relieved that it's an easy one, only to discover it's not as easy as it seems. Do you remember the last time Jesus did this, the last time he sort of turned and posed a question of his own? It was in Matthew 21, when they came to him with a question about his authority. He's like, hold on to that. I'm going to ask you a question. 
and see how you answer it. And there he asked them about John the Baptist. Remember, he asked, the baptism of John, was that from heaven or was that from man? And they couldn't answer the question honestly because they were afraid of the crowds, because they feared people's opinion more than they feared God. So the last time Jesus posed a question to them about authority kind of stymied them. It revealed where they were really coming from. This question reveals something too. In fact, those two questions, they have a lot in common, although it may not seem like it at first. Right there, it was about John the Baptist. Here, Jesus is asking about the prophecies of the Messiah. Like, if we go to the Old Testament, we look at the prophecies, whose son is the Messiah supposed to be? They may seem unrelated, but in fact, they're very connected. They have to do with the question of authority. Who has the authority to pronounce the arrival of the Messiah? Because that's what John the Baptist had done. When Jesus asks, what do you think about John the Baptist? He's asking, what do you think about what he says? Because he says, I am the one who was promised. John the Baptist declares that openly. And so in taking a side on John, they take a side on his authority to name the Messiah. And that's one way that the Messiah would be recognized, that the prophets would declare him. And here, John the Baptist, a prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, declares Jesus is the Messiah. If you deny his authority to do that, then how else could you identify the Messiah? How else could you know? Well, there's another way, right? There's another possibility. You could do it through this interpretation of Scripture, which is what Jesus gets at here. Like these men, they've denied John's authority, but now he asks them about David. He asks them, about the Psalms. Like, if you deny the prophets, then okay. But where are you going to find the ability to identify the Messiah? And the answer they give is a pretty simple one. The answer is genealogy. Genealogy is how we do it, right? We know who the Messiah is because he will be the son of David. We can trace the bloodline from King David generation after generation, and that will identify the Messiah. That's done. Son of David. Thanks for the question. And then Jesus quotes some scripture to them. He says, great, son of David, now answer me this. In Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah Lord. So how is it possible that the Messiah is the son of David, and yet David calls him Lord? And they're like, don't know. And it silences them. Now, the way that Jesus interprets that psalm, Psalm 110, is fundamental to the Christian gospel. So that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning, Psalm 110. What Psalm 110 means for Israel, what that psalm meant for the apostles, and then also what that Psalm 110 means for Jesus himself. So it might help to have Psalm 110 fresh in your mind. So if you will, turn with me there to the book of Psalms, number 110. This is a famous messianic psalm. Jesus quotes only the beginning, but I want you to hear the whole thing. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You might leave a bookmark there in your Bible. As we go forward, you might want to refer back to Psalm 110. But the first question I want you to think about is this. What does that psalm mean for Israel? Right? Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. What do those words mean for them? There are two things that I want you to think about. The first is this. Psalm 110 means that fulfillment is spiritual, not physical. And the second thing is this. Psalm 110 means that ultimate authority is scriptural, not institutional. Right, so two things. Spiritual, not physical. Scriptural, not institutional. Here's what I mean. And the most striking lesson, I think, in Psalm 110 is one that is really easy to miss, but it's crucial. It's a theme that we've hit on again and again, and it's this difference between the physical and the spiritual. Right? The people that Jesus is speaking to have an idea that God's promises to them will be fulfilled physically. They are longing for a Messiah, for a king, but not in the way that we do in hindsight. What they're looking for is for a physical king to establish a kingdom like they used to have in that physical land to drive out their occupiers and essentially go back to the way things were under King David. That would be physical fulfillment. But that's not the fulfillment that Jesus comes to bring. The fulfillment of God's covenant promises will be spiritual, not just physical. That Christ establishes a spiritual, not just physical kingdom. Now consider how Psalm 110 speaks to this. Right? We talked about genealogy. Right? The idea that the son of David will be the Messiah and that we could trace his lineage generation after generation. Genealogy traces physical descent. And the Bible is full of genealogies. For some people's taste, perhaps a little too many genealogies. Right? Genealogies are those sections in the Bible, sometimes really long sections where you find out who begat who, and then who begat who, and who begat who. And you're like, I don't know. I, I, I've lost count and I can't pronounce any of these names, right? But that matters. That idea of physical descent matters in Scripture, and so these genealogies are preserved and passed down. Physical descent is sufficient, if you think about it, to identify the Messiah as the son of David, right? Because to know who the son of David is, we just have to look at those generations, that bloodline. 
But physical descent alone can't explain how the son of David can be David's Lord. Physical descent can't do that. Physical descent makes logical sense of that order, generation after generation. But the idea of the Son being the Lord of the Father turns all logic on its head. Genealogy can't account for that reality. Now, as we've seen already again and again, when Jesus interacts with these adversaries, he is always thinking, always operating on a higher plane. Right? They're coming at him here, and he's up here. And this is no different. That plane, though, if you need a name for it to understand, like, what is the higher plane that he's operating on? Let's call it spiritual. People who come to him seeking to twist him, trick him on the physical level are confounded by him on the spiritual level. The only way to explain the mystery of Psalm 110 is on the spiritual level. The son of David can be David's Lord only because the son of David is also the son of God. That's the solution to the mystery. So Psalm 110 and Jesus' application, it's not just a messianic psalm. It's also an incarnational psalm. Because the only way to make sense of this, the only way to answer the question that he poses is the incarnation of the Son of God. So the fulfillment is spiritual, not just physical. But there's something else here for Israel. Ultimate authority is scriptural, not institutional. Right? No matter how much we revere the scriptures, somebody has to interpret them. Right? Somebody has to say, this is what the Bible means. And usually the authority to interpret scripture and say what it means lies in the hands of religious authorities. They're the ones who tell us what it means. But here we see Jesus again and again challenging religious authorities over the meaning of Scripture. It's like his signature move. He's constantly um, undermining, testing, calling into question their ability to interpret Scripture. Have you not read, he asks? Have you not heard? Do you not know? Constantly putting Scripture in front of them and asking the question, like, do you guys even read this? Do you understand how to interpret this? He poses challenges to the authorities that they can't answer, like this one. If the religious authorities reject John the Baptist's prophetic word, then they're trusting in their own interpretation instead. So Jesus puts their interpreting skills to the test and finds them wanting. These men, by showing their inability to make sense of the Scriptures, it's like Jesus is silencing the voice of their authority. saying they have no authority to say what is and what is not because they don't know, because the mysteries of Scripture are closed to them. So one thing we can say for certain, for Jesus, the Scriptures themselves are the ultimate authority. The scriptures do not mean whatever the religious authorities say they mean. For Jesus, the authority is scripture. 
And the religious leaders are right only to the extent that they rightly divide the word of truth. And that's the proper order of authority. Scripture is above human interpreters, even churchly interpreters. If the church does not follow Scripture, it does not follow Christ. The church has no authority unless it submits itself to Scripture. Which means that if our religious authorities pay lip service to Scripture, as these did, but they don't actually know it, or they don't actually follow it, or they ignore it, or they set it aside, or they twist it, then in Jesus' eyes, they have no authority at all. And if you doubt that, wait till the next chapter where he's going to make it very clear that this is the case. So there's some things for us to just kind of lock in our minds here before we move forward. First of all, to understand Jesus, you have to join him on that higher spiritual plane. If you want to get what he's saying, if you want to interpret Scripture the way he's interpreting it, you have to be up here, not down here. But the other thing, to be like him and to think like him, Scripture must be your highest authority. It must be above all other authorities. So that's what Psalm 110 means for Israel, but I want you to think about what Psalm 110 means for the apostles. Because this isn't an isolated moment. This argument that Jesus makes, this question that he poses, actually comes up in the New Testament a number of times, which suggests that this is almost like a talking point in apologetics of the New Testament church. Uh, let me give you an example. First time this happens, it's in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter, at that great sermon on Pentecost, invokes Psalm 110. So this is Acts 2, uh, just a little excerpt from that sermon. This is starting in verse 32. Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That proclamation, really significant. And it's fascinating that at that moment, the, the proof text that Peter hangs it on is Psalm 110. Two things. On this, what does Psalm 110 mean for the apostles? Well, it means number one, that the Christhood of Jesus is certain. And then secondly, it means that Jesus fulfills all the work of the promised Christ. So the Christhood of Jesus is certain. That's a weird phrase, the Christhood of Jesus, but it reflects the real meaning of that word. We often use the word Christ as if it's Jesus' name. It's not a name, it's a title. Right, as I said earlier, Christ means Messiah, it means anointed one. So Jesus is the Christ, which is why he asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? Right, what do you think about the Messiah, the anointed one? Now, that's a great question, but in Matthew 22, you'll notice Jesus doesn't answer it. 
Jesus doesn't say, uh, well, <laughs> the way that Psalm 10, 110 makes sense is, you know, me. I'm the Messiah, and I'm also the God-man, and so I solve the mystery, and there's no other way of understanding this. He doesn't come out and say that. He alludes to things. He hints at things. But it's here in Acts that that claim comes out 100%, fully declared by Peter in these words. Peter says, Psalm 110 acts as evidence. It acts as proof. Like, therefore, because of this, he says, we know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Like, all of the hints, all of the allusions, all of the the questions in people's minds as Jesus is saying things, like, is he the one? Is John the Baptist right? All of it out in the open publicly right here. Not as a suggestion, but as an absolute certainty proclaimed with power. And Psalm 110 works as testimony. If you think about it, when it was written, Psalm 110 was evidence. It was testimony to Jesus' Christhood in advance. Centuries before his birth, already on the record, are these words of the psalmist that later will be revealed to refer to Jesus. Peter refers to Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, to the resurrection from the dead. That too is evidence that gives certainty that he is the one. And with the gift of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost, the whole reason he's speaking to explain, like, why are you seeing this stuff? Why is this going on? It's happening to testify to the fact that he is the one so that we can know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. All of that is evidence. And Peter says, we are witnesses. He's speaking here about a certain knowledge that Jesus' Christhood is absolutely certain. There is no doubt that he is the one. That's one thing. Psalm 110 for the apostles speaks to that absolute certainty. But it does something else for the apostles. Jesus is not only the Messiah, but but he's the one who did all of the work. Like everything that was promised by God to his people was done by Jesus. He has performed the complete work. So he is completely the Messiah, but he has completed the work of the Messiah as well. I think this comes into focus most clearly with the author of Hebrews, who uses Psalm 110 uh, quite a bit. From the very beginning, in fact, in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, he alludes to the invitation in Psalm 110. Uh, And then he, he quotes directly from it. He says, in the allusion, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then 10 verses later in verse 13 of Hebrews 1, he, he quotes it. He says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So you have right at the beginning the, the invitation of Psalm 110 and the fact that Jesus accepts it. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, as he was invited to do in the words of Psalm 110. So 
in the book of Hebrews, you see Psalm 110 used to exalt Christ as the ruler of creation, as the one who is higher even than the angels, as a cosmic king, as the Messiah was promised to be. But the author of Hebrews does more than that. He fleshes out more than anyone else the the Messiah's priestly role as well. Because in the Old Testament, the Messiah who was prophesied wouldn't just be a king, he would be a priest king. Both of those offices combined. So we see this in Hebrews. If you go to Hebrews 5, there's kind of a, a, a thread that focuses on the priesthood of Christ. It's introduced there uh, in Hebrews 5, quoting uh, verse 4 of Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Like that is one of the statements of Psalm 110. And then it's worked out by the author of Hebrews what that means. In chapter 7 especially, he digs deep into Jesus' priesthood. He says, this is starting in verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, so not physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he contrasts a physical lineage of priesthood with a spiritual lineage of priesthood. It says the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, this higher calling, this permanent priesthood that is founded on an unchangeable promise. This too is recorded in Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews says, It was not without an oath, For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And the conclusion the author of Hebrews draws from that quote from Psalm 110 is this. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The spiritual covenant is better than the physical. It is the fulfillment of all the promises that the physical could never deliver on. And the priesthood of the Messiah and the kingship of the Messiah, those things go hand in hand. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, starting in verse 11, we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again and again, you hear those words, those allusions from Psalm 110. You can see What it means, the self-sacrifice of the priest completes his atoning work, and then he's raised to sit at the Father's right hand. He's a king whose kingdom is growing and growing as his adversaries submit. And the messianic priest king who's described in the Old Testament is Jesus. And Jesus has done and is doing and will do everything that God promised 
that that Messiah would do. A couple of things to remember, to file away because of this. If this is what Psalm 110 means to the apostles, then it means for us, first of all, you can't proclaim the gospel without proclaiming the kingdom. There's no gospel without the kingdom. The kingship of Jesus Christ is what is proclaimed on Pentecost. The gospel depends on his identity as the Messiah, as Lord and anointed King. There is no gospel without it because the second thing, Christianity is not just a philosophy, it's a fulfillment. If Christianity was just a set of ideas, if it was just some principles that you could apply to your life, then you could abstract it all in that way and just think of, of, of sort of essential moral lessons from the great teacher Jesus or something like that. But if Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise, if he brought the spiritual into the physical in this way, then it's more than just an idea. It's more than just a, a system for living. It's a complete fulfillment, a cosmic fulfillment of God's promises to us. It's so much larger than we think. Well, that's what Psalm 110 means for Israel and the apostles, but I want to think about what it means for Jesus too. The funny thing is, as so often is the case in these exchanges, we often think about the, the, the back and forth between Jesus and his adversaries without fully appreciating the meaning of what Jesus is saying from Jesus' point of view. And it would be easy to think that what happens here is a sort of... Uh, like a gotcha moment. Like Jesus has this difficult passage of Scripture. He wants to see if they can interpret it, and they can't. And so that shows everybody that these guys are bad interpreters, and Jesus wins again. But what must Psalm 110 mean to Jesus as he speaks those words? Thinking about that is actually what moves me the most when I reflect on our passage. It's not the value of Psalm 110 as a proof or as evidence or as a testimony but just knowing that as Jesus reads it, he's reading a father's love letter to his son. That here's Jesus in the flesh incarnate, reading these words of David from centuries earlier, and they're speaking to him. Not just of him, but directly addressing him. So as he reads this, he's reading, if you think about it, like on multiple levels, a father's love letter to his son. It's King David writing to the son of David as God the Father makes his promise to God the Son. It was promises like these that Jesus carried with him. It was promises like these that led Jesus to the cross. It was promises like these that brought him out of the grave and promises like these that raised him up and seated him at the Father's right hand. What Psalm 110 must have meant to Jesus himself to savor those words and to know the certainty of his calling, the certainty of his work, the certainty of the fulfillment of all that the Father had spoken, to know that whatever humiliation he had to endure, in becoming one of us, in suffering, in dying for our sins, whatever he had to go through, to know that it would be followed with exaltation. That the word had been spoken Eons ago, 
that this is how it would end. That whatever alienation from the Father he would have to endure on the cross, he would be united. He would be seated at the Father's right hand. To know that with certainty, this letter must have been precious to him. He must have cherished it and loved it. It spoke to the Father's love for the Son, and it spoke to the fulfillment of the promises. It spoke to the exaltation of the Son and to His growing dominion. Psalm 110, when you go back and look, has many declaratives, commands, assurances. One of them that's incredible to me is this from verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. It's an exhortation, a commandment. The Messiah is being told, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus does this. He enters into the midst of his enemies, as we've seen his adversaries all around him, and in their midst, his dominion grows. And Paul exclaims in 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Not the Pharisees, death. Because by now, Paul too is up here on that spiritual level, seeing the, the actual scale of the work of the Messiah. In Philippians, he goes back to this theme, Philippians 2, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, these are all cherished New Testament passages, all things written by the apostles after the work that Jesus did. And we, as believers, as followers, we, we memorize these things, we quote them, we remind ourselves of these precious words, all of which are just restating what had already been set down in Psalm 110. The words of the psalmist baffled the Pharisees. They were crystal clear to the Son of God. It would be remiss if we didn't just spend just a tiny little moment thinking about what Psalm 110 means for you. So let's think about that for a moment. What does Psalm 110 mean for us? If we've thought through all of this and we've imagined all these different perspectives, what do these words mean for us? Well, by now, I hope you have a pretty good idea of how to answer that question, but there are two things that I want you to take away. First of all, there's a line in 110 verse 3 that I want you to remember. It says this, it's speaking the Father to the Son, but it says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So right there in the psalm, we have this idea that the power of salvation is his. It's not yours. But on the day of his power, you will offer yourself freely. Which means you can set aside your anxiety about are you believing hard enough? Are you faithful enough? Is your faith big enough or strong enough? On the day of his power, you will offer yourself freely. It's a promise the father makes to the son. We don't need to doubt the father's word to his son. We can know for certain that he will keep it. You will not miss 
what God has promised to you. Second thing, we saw the author of Hebrews quote these words about that priesthood of Melchizedek. He says, you are a priest forever. And that, I know, would have been a cherished promise to Jesus, but I want you to think a little bit about what that means for you as well. Right? This is a promise to the Son that is so secure that the psalmist gives it a preface. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So what I'm about to tell you is unchangeable, unshakable. There's going to be no turning away from this. This is certain. This is absolute. You are a priest forever. An absolute certain priesthood promised to the Son. But Jesus' unchangeable priesthood is not just a promise to Him. It is a promise to you as well. Because what is the purpose of a priest? What is the need for a priest? A priest exists to intercede on behalf of his people. So if Jesus has been promised, you are a priest forever, as if God is saying to us, you have a priest forever. You have a permanent, unchangeable intercessor and mediator. There will always be at the right hand of the Father one who loves you, who advocates for you, who is determined to have you, to claim you, who knows you by name, looks at you and says, you are mine. If his priesthood is permanent, in other words, then his people are too. If his priesthood is permanent, then his people are permanent too. That's what Psalm 110 means for us. You think about Jesus' question, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? But when you hear the promises of Psalm 110 and you reflect on what they mean, then it's no longer a question of what you think, it's what you know with certainty. You know with certainty that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And you can know with certainty, too, that you are His. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.